morning, Valley Hope. Good morning. Uh, there it is. Uh, my name is Rachel Toon, if we have not met. Uh, I am the Dean of Spiritual Formation up the road at Montreat College, uh, which is just another way of, a glorified way of saying I'm the campus mom at Montreat College, uh, which I love doing. And I, uh, I'm really, really happy to be with you uh, this morning. Valley Hope has a very special place in my heart. So there's some new faces here, but you were my first church home when I came to the great state of North Carolina. I now worship at a little baby EPC church plant in downtown Asheville called House of Mercy. Church planting is something that's near and dear to my heart, but uh, I say you guys, you guys were the first, so know that I love you and I pray for you and I think of you often and fondly. So thanks for, uh, for letting me come and, and spend the morning with you today. Uh, Anthony called me uh, earlier this summer and said that he needed somebody pinch hit for him over Labor Day weekend and asked if I would oblige, and I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, what, what do you want me to preach on? He said, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> and I knew I was being punished because I, I usually say the stuff I don't want to preach on in chapel for him. And so uh, <laughs> here we are, Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, if, if there was a heavy metal book of the Bible, it would be Ecclesiastes. Or if you're going to be like a little more highbrow about it, um, this is the, the, the book for the postmodern, sophisticated, cynical French guy who's sipping wine and smoking a cigarette. Uh, if, if the biblical canon was a family, this is the, the angsty uncle who you have to invite to Thanksgiving, but he makes everyone uncomfortable because of his dark existential musings. Um, that he's, this is that, it's that guy. That's who Ecclesiastes is. It's arguably the most depressing book in the Bible, probably why my Old Testament students love it. Uh, and frankly, I do too. I'm a big fan, actually. As, as uh, challenging as it is to preach, as mad as I was at Anthony, uh, I love it because it's really nothing you would expect a book from the Bible to be. And it's been making Christians nervous for about a millennia who have been working very hard to kind of exegetically hustle their way out of Ecclesiastes. Uh, but I actually really do believe that this book is for us. And not just because I'm a pastor, and I have to say that, uh, though that, that, while that may be true, I actually do think we need Ecclesiastes uh, for this cultural moment in which we find ourselves. I think it has something uh, unique to offer us. And like all great eccentrics, it will take a little work and a little time and a little discomfort to get to know him. Uh, but it is well worth it because we encounter a personality that is just totally unique in the Bible uh, with something really unique to say. But first, uh, let's do a little bit of a recap. I know Anthony has been uh, walking you through this. Uh, so the preacher who the book is named after, we get that word uh, from, it's the, from the Greek word Ecclesiastes, means somebody who convenes an assembly. So that's why it's called that, uh, if you were wondering. Uh, so he starts off kind of his existential musings right from the beginning in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter one. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything's meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? It's very inspiring from the outset. Uh, and as Anthony has taught you all, right, that, that word meaningless, uh, the NIV translates as a Hebrew word hevel. Uh, it means vapor, smoke, uh, breath. The, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word is used by Paul in Romans chapter 8 when he says that creation was subject to frustration. Uh, so that kind of gives you a vibe for what this word is. And you want to think about fog, right? It's fleeting, it's unpredictable, it's difficult to navigate through clearly, and it's frustrating as I'll get out to try and drive in uh, as the weather kind of settles in here in the Appalachians. Uh, and that really gives us a sense of what Ecclesiastes 
is about. It's kind of this ruthless project of deconstruction where the preacher is going to ask, one, is life meaningful at all? And two, can we discover what that meaning is? Or is it always going to elude us? Like smoke that's just going to slip through our fingers. So that's a very, very peppy introduction. And we're going to tackle chapter three today. Uh, And at this point in the book, the preacher has done what any self-respecting frat boy would do, uh, which is try everything and experiment with all of the things. So uh, sex and money and success and entertainment and even wisdom, he's given it all a fair try. And since we know that church tradition uh, says that this is at least a Solomon-like figure, if not Solomon himself, um, there has been a concerted college effort with the 700 wives and 300 concubines. So uh, this is someone who does speak with some authority in this matter. And what he has concluded so far is that it's all meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Uh, which brings us to our text for today, which is going to be chapter 3, and we'll start with verses 1 through 8. I think we've got it up there. All right. Um, here, let me, I'm old school, so let me find it. I should have thought through to mark this ahead of time, but I didn't do that. Numbers Deuteronomy. Yeah, forget it. It's up there. <laughs> for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh. Verse 5. There it is, thank you. A time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So here we have a really beautiful, famous poem in the Bible. Uh, a lot of people have heard this, even if they don't necessarily know where it comes from. And what, what the preacher is doing here is describing the full landscape of human experience. He's not saying what should be. He's saying what is. What is reality actually like? Because it involves birth and death. It involves Mourning and dancing, a unity and division, love and war, and some weird thing about scattering stones. Uh, we don't know what that is. Scholars have a lot of speculation on it. Some think it has to do with uh, in, in wartime when soldiers would drop a bunch of rocks to ruin a field. Uh, the Jewish Midrash tries to make it a sexual thing. Don't know how they did that. Um, I didn't delve too much into it. I don't really want to know. Uh, but So there's something going on with rocks uh, amongst a bunch of other things. And life is just this really bizarre paradox of beauty and of horror. And when confronted with that reality, it's actually kind of hard to wrap your mind around it. And I experienced this really for the first time in a new kind of a way over the summer. Uh, Long story short, in June, I was working with a nonprofit in Ukraine, and that was my first time experiencing proximity to war in my life. Uh, And one of the things that just struck me the most about it was the insane paradox of it all. Um, and it really wasn't trying to be too existential, but like air raids would, air raid sirens would sound on a daily basis, and you're supposed to follow the two-wall rule, and if you know what this is, it's, it's a thing where you're supposed to be two interior walls into a building uh, to avoid shrapnel, which, by the way, no one did. Like the siren would go off, and everyone would be like, ah, oh, it's time to go to the store. I think I need to get some gas. You know, they would just kind of go about their lives. Um, but that was like a constant reality, 
And in early June, the climbing roses are really beautiful in Ukraine, just breathtakingly so. And you see so much of the best of human beings in these scenarios, of Christians who were sacrificially loving and caring for their countrymen, whose lives had literally been blown up. Uh, and of course, you see the worst, uh, with soldiers preparing to go back to the Russian front, and with families who came back to homes that had been looted and laced with live explosives. And you're just like, how are all those things happening together? How, how is that possible? It doesn't make sense. And how is it that God is somehow sovereign and in charge and overseeing all of this all at the same time? And when you sit with that, it just kind of messes with your head a little bit. And I think that um, the preacher's also experiencing whatever that feeling is called. I still don't really know what it's called. Uh, and this is his reflection on it. So this is verse 9 through 11. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. And yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So verse 9, the preacher's repeating what the, 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 verse that he's, or the question he started with, which is implying a rhetorical answer to that question. So what do workers gain from all their toil? Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. They're chasing after the winds. It's fleeting, it's transitory, it's insubstantial. It's this mystery that haunts us, that weighs us down, that burdens us. And we know, right, we know that God's timing is perfect, that he has made everything beautiful in its time. We confess that and believe that, but so much of the time, we have no idea what's going on. And we don't understand why we live in a world where moms miscarry babies and racism persists and communities grieve suicide and where statistically it is safer for a woman to walk alone in a city at night than to go home to her husband. Why do we live in that kind of a world? Why does God allow evil to have free reign, or at least it sure seems that way, an awful lot of the time. And God has set eternity in the human heart. We have the echo of Eden in us. It's in our DNA. It's that ache for a home that we've never seen. Um, there has to be more. And yet, so much of the time, God's actions, or dare I say, inaction, again, at least it feels that way, remain mysterious. And this is painful. And humans spend an awful lot of time, an awful lot of their lives, running away from that reality. Because we really hate hard questions. We do not like them. Uh, but I think Ecclesiastes is actually inviting us to do something that is very, very hard for Americans to do. And it is sit with hard questions and not have the answers. We are not good at that. Um, I love that the kids are. I think that's one of the best things about kids. They, they tackle hard questions head on. Uh, I have a friend named Elias who's an existential philosopher. He's also five. Uh, and I have become his speed dial theologian. And so uh, earlier this year, he was asking, he, he was uh, sitting with his mom. And he goes, Mom, where's Satan? She's, she wisely said, um, that would be a great question for you to ask Miss Rachel the next time you see her. <laughs> and he agreed. And so a few weeks later, Elias went to violin camp, which was taught incidentally by a woman named Miss Rachel. Uh, and having given the directions for the day, she asked if anybody had any questions, and Elias jumped up and said, yes, um, where is Satan? 
I still haven't had to field that one, um, and I'm, I'm kind of glad, actually. It's like, he's under your bed. You know, I don't know what I'm going to tell him. Um, but ki- kids are great at this, right? And, but, but as we get older, it gets harder for us. Uh, we kind of lose this ability. We become a lot less willing to sit in questions, especially in the United States. I would suggest that no culture is better at avoiding existential angst uh, than Americans. We, we nationally do this. We work 70-hour weeks, and then we come home and anesthetize ourselves with Netflix and with TikTok and with Amazon Prime. Uh, we medicate away the longing for eternity on our hearts uh, with pace and distraction. That's kind of how we roll. Um, Justin Whitmill Early has this great, uh, he, who wrote The Common Rule, if you whip out your phone, he says that um, the, the restless thumb often correlates to a restless heart. And we are a culture of restless hearts, aren't we? And very distracted ones. And we live in a, a culture that's actually designed to keep us restless and distracted. And I'm not saying that metaphorically. Did you know that our consumer culture was designed on purpose? So in the 1950s, uh, our industrial production was doing so well, we had to kind of reevaluate our system. And so there were two options. And option A was to actually reduce uh, wor- the work week, expand leisure time, and just moderate production so that it met everybody's needs. And one company that advocated for that, incidentally, was Kellogg. Honey Nut Cheerios. That, that's what they were voting for. Option B was to get more people to just keep buying more stuff they didn't need. And they had to actually train culture how to do that. Um, which option did you, do you think we went with? Um, so this is uh, from the Journal of Retailing, Spring Edition, 1955, written by a, an economist named Victor Lebo. This is what he says. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption a way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction, in consumption. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their toil under the sun? I think this is one of, if not the greatest danger for the Western church. This is our struggle because every aspect of our lives is inundated with this siren song of comfort and convenience and consumption that drowns out the eternity in our heart. Uh, I uh, saw this incredible documentary about the persecuted Iranian church called Sheep Among Wolves. It's on YouTube uh, if you want to look it up. And they interview this uh, Iranian couple who sought asylum in the United States for religious religious persecution. And uh, three months into being in the U.S., the wife was begging her husband to take her back to Iran. And he's like, what? Are you crazy? Why do you want to go back to Iran? We, get, we have religious freedom here. We can follow Jesus and nobody comes after us. Why do you want to go back? And this is what she told him. There is a satanic lullaby here and all the Christians are sleepy and I am feeling sleepy. Yeah, chew on that for a little bit. Um, people of God, there's a satanic lullaby lulling us to sleep in our world. And to experience abundant life in the kingdom of Jesus, we have to wake up. And that is the first great gift that the preacher offers us. He is dunking our heads in the existential ice bucket uh, and making us confront the reality 
the way that it is. And all the ways that our habits of consumption and technological addiction are eating us alive. All the ways we try to find meaning from what is at worst destructive uh, and what is at best pebble, fleeting, insubstantial. Here in a moment, gone the next. And our instinct is to avoid these hard, painful questions. Again, especially as Americans. To avoid this agony of the eternity in our hearts, of the ache for a kingdom that's not all the way here yet. We see glimpses of it, but we know, we feel in our bones when left alone for a quiet, quiet minute that there's so much more, um, that so much has been lost. But the preacher's inviting us to resist our American temptation to avoid and distract. And he's inviting us not to jump to answers, but to sit in questions. Because if consumerism and distraction is the kryptonite of Americans, I think uh, needing to have answers and be right is the kryptonite of Presbyterians. <laughs> and I say that with love and affection. I am one. Okay, I love to be right. Uh, and, and this is, it's in our DNA. You may, we are in a Presbyterian church, if you didn't know that. Um, though you've probably figured that out. We're a bunch of nerds. Anthony Rodriguez, okay? Um, <laughs> that's how we roll. It goes back to our Reformation roots. We love books and old books and old dead guys and the Bible and study. And we love to search for answers in the scriptures. And that's great. That's why I'm Presbyterian, right? I name that. I claim that. I'm a fan. Um, but I wonder... If sometimes we're so committed to finding answers that we actually blast past the power of questions and the mystery of God. And I think our witness has suffered for it, actually. So one of my very favorite things at my job is uh, at Montreal is Alpha. Anybody familiar with Alpha? Have you heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, all right. Good. We got some people in the house who know what's up. Uh, it's been around since the 70s. The British invented it. So what's not to love about that? Uh, the, all the British accents. Uh, it came out of Holy Trinity, Brompton. And... Uh, what that church realized is there's no place for people in culture to be able to ask their questions. There's nowhere for them to go to have those conversations. And so those church leaders decided what, what would it look like for us to create that kind of community. And Alpha was born. Uh, it's the product of that question. Uh, and millions of people have come to faith, truly, uh, through Alpha. And it's, it's designed around you. You need really good food because, you know, it's a way to, well, college kids' hearts, but let's be honest. We don't outgrow that. Uh, you eat food, you, you watch this really winsome presentation of just kind of some fundamentals of what, uh, what the Christian faith is, and then you just open the conversation and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, and there is one golden rule for alpha table leaders. Does anybody know what it is who's been familiar with it? Thou shalt not answer questions. It makes people crazy, especially church people. And again, I'm one of them, so I'm like, I'm, I'm claiming it. Um, it. makes people absolutely crazy. I actually teach people when I'm training alpha leaders to sit on their hands, to stop tucking. And so it, this, like, it drives them absolutely nuts. Whatever happens, keep your mouth shut. Why do bad things happen to good people? Great question. What do you think? Uh, does prayer actually work? What's your experience been? I believe in reincarnation. Interesting. Tell me more about that. Um, there's one kind of borderline exception, like do, do Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Yes. What do you think? Always turning it back. Um, always probing a little bit more. So people will say wildly heretical things, and we don't correct them. They will ask random uh, exegetical questions, and we don't flex our Bible knowledge. As tempting as it is for me to put my seminary degree to work, 
Uh, I'm still trying to refrain on that one. Here's why. As Christians are so often so quick to jump in with the right answer, we don't actually wait for the real question. And we love the gospel, right? We want people to know that. So we're so eager to get to it that we're not waiting for the heart question. Elias was not asking for a GPS location on Satan out of intellectual curiosity, right? There's a question behind the question. In, at least in my admittedly limited experience, I have found that people's objection, objections to the Christian faith are almost never actually intellectual objections. They masquerade as such. Um, but the question is not, why, do, why does God let bad things happen to good people? The real question is, uh, why is my newborn clinging, clinging to life with an artificial heart machine? And why, did my husband, why is my husband cheating on me? And why uh, did my parents start selling me for sex at the age of four? Those are the real questions. And by the way, those are not just arbitrary examples I came up with. Those were conversations I had with real people last week. Those are the questions people are actually asking. It's easier to, to wrap them up in theological and existential language, but that's never the heart. And uh, we need to recognize that. And we can't answer those questions. And we shouldn't try. I can't explain to that mom why her newborn is clinging to life on an artificial heart machine. This side of glory, we are not going to know that. And the more we talk as we learn in the book of Job, the more stupid we sound. Um, and here's why we shouldn't try and answer those. Because the God of the Bible does not come to us with answers. He comes to us with his presence. In the burning bush, the whirlwinds, the still small voice, the manger, the cross. That's his response to the big questions that we have. He's not satisfying our intellectual curiosity, which is hard for me. And you, people of God, are the body of Christ. And this is the same Christ who asks 278 questions in the New Testament and answers three of them. So maybe we should take the hint. Because uh, ultimately people actually don't need answers. They want them, but they don't need them. They need a community to help them bear the weight of their questions. And they need to encounter a God whose uh, ways are mysterious and frustrating, but who comes to us not with answers, but with himself. Uh, through the death and the resurrection of his son and the continuing mission of his people filled up with the Holy Spirit. So, what do we do with all our existential Ecclesiastes angst? Right? What are we supposed to do uh, with Ecclesiastes 3, with the ache in the heart? And I have two suggestions. And the first is utterly shameless, is I have 78 college students in Alpha this fall. <laughs> um, I think we're covered for leaders, but I don't know until they all show up, and spring will be here before we know it. So I need help. <laughs> and if you are uh, drawn to that, if you are attracted uh, to a model where you're just listening to kids and giving them space to say whatever it is they need to say, um, if you're somebody who's quick to listen, uh, slow to speak, who doesn't need to jump in and teach and be right, who's willing to be honest about some of your own faith struggles, uh, in fact, who maybe feels pretty insecure about, about teaching and Bible stuff, call me. <laughs> if I can't fit you in this semester, I guarantee you, I'll use you later on. Uh, so that's my, my shameless pitch, and I'm not, um, I'm not sorry about it. But uh, the other thing that I invite you to do this week is to sit with a hard question. 
And so the next time the, the kindergarten philosopher in your life asks you, why, 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 why? Before you jump into the response, probe a little deeper. Um, see if there's maybe a question behind that question. Or uh, maybe you ask your roommate or your teenager or your spouse, uh, just something on their mind, a big faith question that they, they wrestle with or think about. And just listen. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to answer it. Uh, just listen to them and see what they say. Or maybe uh, you let yourself do that and sit in a quiet moment uh, with yourself. I think it was Pascal who said, all the problems in the world come back to the fact that human beings cannot sit alone with themselves for five minutes. I think it's probably true. Or maybe when you are uh, scrolling through the news and you read something awful about Ukraine or something else going on in the world, you just say, Lord, why? Why do you allow this? When will you come and make everything right uh, the way that you promised? Just ask the Lord to meet you in some of those dark, hard, unanswered questions. Because he promises that he will. Uh, because his name shall be called Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, it's hard to, um, to acknowledge that. Because God, we do want answers uh, in a world that is brutal and painful and doesn't make sense. Um, but we ask that uh, as we wait for those uh, in, until glory that you would give us yourself. And that we would recognize you in these painful places. Uh, and that you would fill us up afresh with your Holy Spirit and teach us to be the kind of people um, who bring your presence to hurting people in the world. That's who we want to be, God, and we need your help to do it. So come, Holy Spirit, in your name. Amen.